from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how the C-suite is stepping it up on sustainability, why sustainability professionals have the edge on anti-racism work, the problem with your net zero commitment, and what does it take to make whiskey sustainable? We could all use a drink this week on 350. It's January 15th, 2021. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from across the USA in Midland Park, New Jersey, it's Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hey, Joel. How are you? (laughs) Oh, you know, I'm reminded uh, back in early 2017 at the Green Biz Conference, which was right after uh, the last inauguration and people were still in kind of a state of shock over that. And I had Annie Leonard, the uh, the president of Greenpeace, uh, on stage in an interview, and and she sat down and and I said, uh, "So Annie, how you doing?" And she said, "You know, we don't ask each other that anymore. We just say <laughs> nice to see you." <laughs> so Heather, nice to see you. Nice to see you, Joel. Yeah, it is. We have a lot of stuff coming up, and you and I have both been. Burning the candle, as they say, um, uh, on on our own individual projects, uh, and uh, I know one of them I'm excited about for you is uh, Thirty Under Thirty. Thirty Under Thirty is a wonderful list of emerging professionals, rising stars in in uh, sustainability. Um, of course, under the age of 30, so 20-somethings, but, but they could be less than 20-somethings, and we have the nomination. Uh, call for nominations up on our website and we've got about 50 so far that are looking real good including a lot from our former honorees which is awesome to have alumni uh, nominating others and and there's a really great group of of uh people being being suggested from all around the world and uh, of all uh industries so i'm excited about that the nomination window is open till january 23rd and we will be publishing the project in may on may 17th yeah. So this is our sixth annual, which means mm-hmm. we have 150 uh, previous 30 under 30, some of whom have now busted through that uh, age limit. But still, they're once a 30 under 30, always a 30 under 30. So yeah, we've got. A, I, I know uh, the 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 bulk of the uh, of the um, nominations come in mm-hmm. just before as the deadline closes. <laughs> right. So I know we're going to get a small <laughs> yeah. flood of those. But uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you all. Uh, who do you know in who's who will be under thirty still mm-hmm. next May? Uh, who is a rising star? It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be in corporate. It could also be in government or mm-hmm. uh, in NGOs or pretty much anywhere else. Uh, we love to know about them. We want to showcase them and create uh, present to the world the most intriguing, most diverse group of professionals that you probably don't know about yet. Right. Um, and yeah. And we uh, one po- final point on this. And I love the fact that we have a lot of 30 under 30 um, honorees now at our events, you know, that that are they're now over 30, but they're uh, very much part of the dialogue. So that's great. Um, now, Joel, you're pretty busy. You got a lot. You've got a lot. You're. <laughs> in fact, 
Wow. Wait, do we have another newsletter coming out next week? <laughs> well, there's there's two two big things coming up in January that that I want to mention. Uh, one is, uh, as you were alluding to, we have our we'll be launching our seventh weekly newsletter called Greenfin Weekly, covering uh, ESG and sustainable finance topics. Um, coming out, the inaugural edition will be on Inauguration Day, January twentieth here in the U.S. at least. It's going to be uh, a little bit different than most of our other newsletters. This will be uh, have a rotating editorship, and so yeah, I'll do the first one, and there'll be a, a, a stream of other editors writing about these issues, bringing their various perspectives. Uh, and, of course, this is all in the run-up to, to our Greenfin conference in um, April, which I'm pleased to say is just looking awesome, the, uh, the lineup of speakers, everything is going on. But also this month... On uh, the 25th, <gasps> what is it? we will be launching our 14th annual State of Green Business Report. No, and, really? Uh, <laughs> yeah, really, as if you've had nothing to do with that except really drive <laughs> the whole project. Uh, and um, we'll be having, as we always do, a webcast. It'll be with uh, myself and uh, Richard Madison, the CEO of uh, S&P Global True Cost. And uh, if you haven't signed up for that, uh, it's always one of the great webinars, the webcasts that we do on the uh, on the webcast calendar every year. We're going to have a huge turnout. I hope you can be part of that. You can go to greenbiz.com slash webcast to learn more about that. And then, oh, yeah, we have this conference coming up in February, Green Biz 21. We won't get into that because we need to get into some great stories that we published as part of our weekend review. So let's start with, uh, we talked about 30 under 30, another opus of that nature uh, came from uh, our colleague uh, Elsa Wenzel, who did her annual 20 C-Suite Sustainability Champions for 2021. That's a little hard to say quickly. 20 C-Suite Sustainability Champions for 2021, uh, a really terrific list. And, you know, one, one of the maxims, I guess, about sustainable business forever for 30 years was, you know, well, how do you how do you transform a business? Well, number one, with a bullet, get the CEO on board. And, uh, you know, and there are a lot of CEOs who have been on board and you know, I'm making air quotes right now that you can't see. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, these are really a group of, of CEOs from companies that are really stepping into sustainability. And that includes uh, full spectrum sustainability, a lot of social justice issues, as well as climate and environmental and resilience and, and, and everything else. So we featured um, 20 of them that companies, uh, people you may know, like uh, Mary Barra from, from GM, uh, who's done some heroic things on the uh, EV front. Um, to uh, Mark Mason, the new CFO of Citi, um, who has taken a stance on uh, systemic racism, an African-American man, uh, published a wrenching company blog post on that topic. Um, and uh, you go through this, uh, a, a lot of bravery, uh, a lot of leadership. And I'll just say that my favorite title in the whole thing belongs to Lisa McKnight, who is the senior vice president and global head of Barbie, <laughs> at Mattel. Uh, yeah, they've got um, 176 different Barbies with 94 hairstyles, 35 skin tones, and nine body types. So uh, the, 
the diversity has hit Mattel in a big way, and and I think uh, Lisa McKnight is is certainly driving that part of it. Yeah, and what I, I you cannot underestimate the impact of a brand like that on making an impression at an incredibly early age, and I just that is one of the things that I love about that pick because it's how we how we talk to our children that informs how they will act in the future and how, and the things that we show them. So I, I, I love that. I loved that, um, that she's such a highly revered executive in her industry. I had some people that I, you know, like there was one person I definitely knew because I suggested him, Patrick Collison, the CEO of Stripe. And I, I love what that company, I mean, the Stripe is the payments um, organization. They, they help run the digital payments for lots and lots and lots and lots of businesses were uh, they're a, a unicorn startup meaning they're 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 worth a billion in fact they're worth way more than a billion they're <laughs> I think a lot when she wrote this they had a 36 billion dollar valuation um, but one of the things that stripe has been doing which I've really admired is driving support for carbon capture projects they've been putting money into um, sequestration technologies including natural solutions like a project vestus which is um promoting the idea of of how you pull pull um carbon into rocks that can be then put into the ocean um and they've they've got money behind carbon cure which is the concrete organization so i love that that name i also uh, i have to admit and i'm embarrassed to admit this i didn't know much about Roz Brewer, the chief operating officer and group president of Starbucks, who's also on the list. But I really loved reading about uh, the, the things that she did pr- prior to to her current role and, and how she just pr- pretty much from from like the moment that she joined, got involved with uh, driving diversity issues and and you know getting the company to re- reset and uh, rebrew, if you will, how they think about it. Also, I love also looking at the sort of title, the titles behind the titles, and she's a chemist. <laughs> okay, she's a chemist with a knack for analytics. Like, wow, <laughs> just all of the the sort of skills and and diverse intellectual points of view that the, that the people on this list bring is is really uh, intriguing as well. And how cool that Starbucks has a, a COO named Brewer. Not only that, but actually they have a CMO <laughs> named Brady Brewer. So I don't know what that is with the brewers and the coffee makers, but they're, uh, they seem to be perking up. Mm-hmm. But uh, let's move over to uh, another story that's uh, a little bit different, uh, but, but equally empowering and exciting, I think. And this is, comes from Bihui uh, Yeah, who is the founder of something called The Power of We and Plan C Advisor wrote a piece, this is a, one of a couple pieces she's written for us, titled, Why Sustainability Professionals Have the Edge on Anti-Racism Work. And it's a, a nice, a really longish piece, but well worth the read, coming up with uh, a set of, uh, I think, 10 or so reasons why this is sort of a natural extension uh, for sustainability professionals to be thinking about racism issues and dealing with them within and outside of organizations. Uh, and, and and the first reason is something I've been talking about for a long time, which is that uh, the ability for sustainability people to think 
in systems and understand uh, how things are connected. And it's sort of the anti-siloization, if that's a word, uh, of organizations thinking about the connectivity among uh, where environmental or, or sustainability in general sits within an organization. And as B writes, dismantling systemic racism requires the same whole systems thinking to create holistic solutions. And, and it goes on, I mean, with dealing with infighting, uh, the ability to listen, uh, the ability for sustainability people to manage guilt, not just theirs, but others who may not be perfect and, and bring guilt to, to the issue, but still have the potential to make a difference. Understanding trade-offs. Oh, no, this is just a really useful piece, putting the, I think, helping sustainability professionals understand something we always love doing. Where else can you make a difference beyond thinking about carbon emissions or waste reduction or energy efficiency? But how else does this fit into an organization in terms of really embedding these principles and philosophies um, into an organization, yeah. in this case, anti-racism? Yeah, I think that, the, and I love this list too, the two that you leapt out for me beyond what you've already mentioned are the dealing with burnout, right? Both of these roles, the DEI and sustainability roles, have a lot of emotional baggage associated with them, right? And you're, you're to go back to the infighting thing before, you're, you're dealing with issues that are, are huge and not easily solvable. And it, and it, and you could feel like you should keep working and working and never take a break and work on the weekends and work, don't take vacation. And, but but the burnout syndrome is very real and, and we need to remind ourselves to take care of ourselves in order to do the the, the best work we can. And the other thing I, I love, and, and I, I totally agree with this one, is is basically the the uh, the fact that they share the, the need to make themselves obsolete, right? <laughs> so you don't... The day you hire a vice president of sustainability or a chief diversity officer should be the day you start trying to make that job unnecessary, that it should be completely integrated with the company and, and should be just so systemic that um, you don't need to call it out. So yeah, those, those really leapt out at me. I hear people talk about that, but uh, racism, like sustainability, will never be done. So I don't think anyone's going to work themselves out of a job. Um but uh, let's move over quickly to uh, our final story we want to talk about today, which uh, comes from uh, Jesse Klein, our contributor uh, regular on Green Viz. Um, and this is a second of, a, of, of two pieces that she's done on the topic of carbon offsets. And the title here is The Problem with Your Net Zero Commitment. And of course, she's referring to all of the net zero carbon commitments that have come out, uh, particularly over the last year or two, and how much so m most of those, if not all of them, rely on carbon offsets because you can only be efficient to a certain extent and then be, eventually you have to offset things you can't reduce. And talking about some of the, the core challenges here, um, and, and the, the one that struck me the most is that you know, carbon offsets have become a commodity. Commodity me means that uh, assumes that things are all similar and therefore uh, people shop around for the cheapest price. Well, cheapest price, they are not all similar and the cheapest price often brings the least effective offsets in terms of the lowest quality in terms of how long they're going to persist. Are they actually going to do the drawdown or offsetting that they need to do in geologic time or is it going to you know, maybe just be around for a few years? 
metrics, a whole range of other things that are challenging here. And offsets are going to, they've been around a long time, um, but they're really on the upswing now. We're going to be seeing this becoming a bigger and bigger and bigger topic for companies as they look to uh, meet their net zero commitments over the next few years. We really need to do something about these challenges with making sure that the offsets really are doing what we're paying for, for them to do. Yeah, and I think one of the the challenges right now, and well, there's so many of them, right, is that it's difficult to compare. There's no st- there's no real standards. Like you can't you can't really go and compare things apples to apples, and that you were you're already alluding to that. But that makes it especially difficult for for the companies that are just coming into this space to to get their arms around. I mean, there's a lot of these are not new, right? I mean, we've been talking about offsets for a long time. Um, but the the focus on this net zero goal means that we will see a lot of them used in the next, uh, I don't know, next decade for sure. Um, and will there be enough of them? That's the other thing is, is um, there's such a demand on them that will continue to drive the price down and we need to focus more on quality and on, on making sure that the projects that are being uh, held up as, as good priority projects aren't somehow... Um, uh, having a negative impact in another part of the world. So it's just um, definitely a dilemma. And I love the framing of this because we know that you're all wanting to buy them. So <laughs> we need to all do our homework, I suppose. And um, this will not go away, this issue. And, and not, neither will our coverage, by the way. This is absolutely a priority area of coverage for us this year. I'd be willing to bet most Green Biz 350 listeners are familiar with the American bourbon brands Jim Beam and Maker's Mark. What you might not know is that they're owned by 120-year-old Japanese company Suntory Group, which raked in $21 billion in revenue in 2019. Or that the company just ranked on CDP's A-list, which recognizes leaders in environmental performance and disclosure. It was on for the second consecutive year. In fact, Centauri was one of just 106 companies to make CDP's A-list for water security. Joining me to chat about the Centauri sustainability culture as well as its priorities is Yuko Koshi-Ishi, Senior General Manager of the Corporate Sustainability Division. Welcome, Yuko. Thank you, Heather, for the introduction, and thank you so much for having me today. So Centauri recently updated its commitments, including adopting a new goal for packaging. Tell us about that target and what you hope to achieve, and what will be the most difficult obstacle that the company faces? Um, Yes, I'm more than happy to share our initiatives, but before that, uh, let me explain a bit more about Suntory, because this is uh, very important for plastics initiatives. So as Heather, you introduced, introduced us. We are a company with more than 120 years of history, and we do own um, Jim Beam and Make His Mark, the world-class bourbon. <laughs> uh, but we are the company which started our business in Japan. So um, our business actually started from the wine business in Japan and then expanded our business to other categories. And we were the first Japanese company to actually build the um, whiskey distillery in Japan. And of course, so obviously, we do have the big um, spirits business, but we also have a big beverage business, so soft drink business, which uh, use a lot of plastic bottles for the business. And that's the reason, one of the reasons why we are working on very much 
very seriously on these plastics initiatives. To the point that you, Heather, you mentioned about our target or the um, goal for the plastics is that uh, we, yes, did um, establish Suntory Group plastic policy last year, which sets a goal to um, switch all our PT bottles that we use globally uh, to the recycled material or the plant-based materials, which means that eliminating all fossil-based materials. Now, I, I, one of the things that I do want to ask you about as well as the packaging goal was, was um, Japan really, I, I was surprised to learn recently that your country has an 85% recycling rate compared to 20% for the United States, as an example. What lessons can U.S. companies learn from the Japanese market? For, for example, as you were setting your goals, how much did that make a difference in, in what you were striving to achieve? Um, yes, this the recycling is really important. So within our plastic policy, we do have the pillar about recycling renewable. So just to add a little bit more information about our plastic policy is that we have four pillars. Um, that is recycle and renewable, reduce and replacement, innovation, and new behaviors. So we have a lot of initiative, initiatives under these pillars. Obviously, recycling is a very important pillar. And this will relate to your question about the, um, the high recycling rate in Japan versus United States. So um, the difference is that I would say for Japan, there's always an infrastructure that is established for the recycling. Uh, there is, there's, there's been a long history of the companies and the government and society working together to establish this, this recycling system. And one element is that, of course, there is a Containers and Packaging Recycling Act. That's kind of the regulation which sets the... Um, the role of consumers, municipalities, and business operators. So for us, like businesses, we, we need to use those kind of recycled materials. For the consumers, um, they're asked to segregate the plastic waste from other waste. And then the municipals will collect those resources so that they will become plastic materials or products again. And furthermore, um, the industry itself, the business industry itself has set this um, voluntarily guideline for designing the packaging, plastic bottles. So one of the examples is that the materials that, need, that will be used for the packaging are already specified in the guideline. So the people, the, so the companies that join the, this industry association, they will follow this guideline and use only the specified materials. The bottles, plastic bottles are all transparent. It's not colored so that it will provide more um, high quality recycled material when it goes through the recycling process, as well as that the labels, you will see the labels on the bottles, they are um, designed to be easily peeled off. So those are some of the examples, but I would say that the difference, I wouldn't say difference, but I would say the success behind Japan's high recycling rate is that the all stakeholders that relates to the recycling value chain, consumers, um, businesses, uh, municipals, they all cooperate together. We have a lot to learn from that. Um, to shift gears a little bit, uh, I, I know the market for solar and wind energy in Japan is very different from the one in the United States. What is Suntory's commitment to renewable energy? How does that factor in your commitments? So um, we have recently updated our 2050 environmental vision. And in here, we have made our target to uh, achieve the net zero greenhouse gas emissions across the whole value chain by 2050. And for this, it's a 
long way to go, but I'm sure that a lot of companies, the whole society, everybody's now heading toward that direction. And of course we are as well. And uh, we are using various kinds of renewable energies at our plants, especially in our operations around the world. Not only the solar power, but also there is some power from the snow ice the, when we, we um, utilize the snow ice as well, and also biomass and micro hydropower. So within the mixture of, by mixing a lot of the types of energies, uh, we are trying to push, move forward to the achieving this goal. And I would say that um, as you recognize, I'm sure that the situation, the availability, the cost um, of the renewable energy is very different from country to country or region to region. So this is not like we do the same thing around the world, but it's more of really adapting to each of the countries and finding the best solution that really matches to that specific region. Um, so obviously, as a beverage company, water means a lot to to your, your organization. And Centauri has set a goal to be water net positive by 2050. What does that mean and what strategies will you use to reach that aspiration? Um, yes, this is uh, another big goal that we have, uh, we share within our group. So this is really about preserving water resource and the ecosystem to cultivate more water than we use in our plants in our operations worldwide. And um, as you mentioned, for us beverage company, water is very important resource, not only for the beverage business, but also for the spirits business. Great bourbon comes from the quality water. So this dealing with water, preserving water is a very important thing. And um, one of the initiatives that we've been conducting for more than decades, well, over 20 years, I would say, nearly 20 years. One of the initiatives that we've been conducting nearly 20 years is called um, Centauri Natural Water Sanctuary. So this activity, which started in Japan in 2003, is about uh, managing the healthy forests that nurture quality groundwater. I would say that water, the situation of water is very different from region to region. Again, it's really the localized resource, but in Japan, the quality water, the groundwater is nurtured through the forest and through the healthy soil. And a lot of times it would take a long, long years, maybe 10, 20 years for those rainwater to be absorbed to the ground and then filtered and become the quality water. So what we do in Japan at the Natural Water Sanctuary is to preserve this forest and to maintain this healthy soil that actually absorbs and filters the rainwater and makes it to a quality groundwater. We now have more than 20 natural water sanctuaries in Japan, and we've already achieved to cultivate um, more water, double the amount of water that we use in our plants um, in Japan through our 20 natural water sanctuaries. And recently, this effort has also expanded um, to the United States, and we now have a natural water sanctuary at the Makers Mark Disturley, which was established in 2016, as well as a natural water sanctuary alliance with the Bernheim Arbort with the Bernheim Arboretum and the Research Forest, which is adjacent to our um, Jim Beam Disturley, and um, these kind of water water conservation activities, the water source conservation activities is now expanding around the world within our group companies. So we also are starting some of the projects um, 
in Europe, and also working, starting to work on some of the preservation activities in uh, Southeast Asia as well. And, and how do you find, uh, decide what region you should do one of these in? Well, obviously, of course, um, Japan, it was the first part, first place to start because our business started from Japan. And we have uh, both beverage, big beverage business and big district, um, beer business and spirits business all use water. So that's, where, that's how we started from Japan. But um, for, the, for the other countries, definitely the bourbon uh, is, water is important for bourbon. And that's how we've been able to um, share the philosophy with our Bean Suntory colleagues and then um, being able to establish, establish the natural water sanctuary. But even, with, even in the other regions, since the, the nature is very different, we will not be able to replicate the same thing um, in other countries, but sharing the same concept. And um, of course, the, the priority will definitely be the, the countries where we do our operations. Well, thank you for uh, giving us a taste of what uh, Centauri is doing. Yuko, uh, really appreciate you being on Green Biz 350. Thank you so much for having me today. You just heard from Yuko Koshaishi, Senior General Manager of the Corporate Sustainability Division for Suntory. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find out more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. As we mentioned, there's a new one starting next week, Green Fin Weekly. We publish a different one or two every day of the week. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll learn more about them. We love your comments, questions, and tips. Our email address is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.